Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. All right, let's begin with prayer tonight, and then we'll uh, begin our final general session in this study. Thank you, Father, for your goodness and your kindness to us. Thank you for the promise of heaven And I ask that as we enter into this final of the main sessions for this study, you would kind of bring everything together and what we've learned and studied, that you would answer those questions in our minds and our hearts and help us long for heaven, long for the day when we see Jesus, when uh, death and hell and sin are all defeated under his feet and under our feet as we reign with him forever and ever. Point us to that day even tonight as we go through this final time together in this main session. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you're looking at your handout, it begins with this quote by Joni Erickson Tata. Uh, it is in the book, but that's not in, the, in the order. So if you're, if you're in your study guide, it's at the very beginning. Um, actually, it's not in the very beginning. It's on the handout, not the study guide. It's in the main book. Joni Erickson Tata was injured in an accident of some kind when she was a teenager. I think it was a swimming accident and was, was paralyzed really from the neck down, and uh, she's a kind of international speaker and um, points people to the hope that she has in Jesus, even with her, her disabilities. She writes this about heaven. Can you hear the sighing in the wind? Can you feel the heavy silence in the mountains? Can you sense the restless longing in the sea? Can you see it in the woeful eyes of an animal? Something's coming. Something better. And of course, she's pointing us to Romans 8 and the redemption that is coming, not just to believers in our bodies, but to all creation. And so tonight in our final session, we're going to be discussing hope for tomorrow. Hope for tomorrow. I think last week was joy for today, hope for tomorrow. If you notice, taken from the lyrics of Great is Thy Faithfulness, uh, joy, joy for today. What's this song? Great is Thy Faithfulness. What's the last, last verse? Hope for today and bright, Joey, something. We really do know our hymns around here, don't we? Something, go look it up. Uh, (laughs) Tonight we're going to be in the study guide on page 78, session 6, Hope for Tomorrow. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. There we go, we always get there, don't we? Page 78 in the study guide, or if you're using the handout, just uh, use that and these opening connection questions to kind of get us into the discussion tonight. What was the last event you really looked forward to? You might write it down. You might just think about it, uh, bring it to mind, but writing it down helps too. What was the last event you really looked forward to? An event at your workplace or here at church or a vacation or something, a night out with your spouse or something like that, a night... Uh, something you really looked forward to. Why did you really look forward to it? I think in most of our cases, the things we really look forward to are generally a break 
in the monotony of everyday life, whether it's a night out with your spouse or, I keep saying that, it sounds like I want that. Um, somebody make that happen. A night out with your spouse or a vacation or a break from work or something like that. It usually is a break from the monotony of everyday life. It's th- those things we put on the calendar that we really look forward to. Now imagine those joys never ending. Imagine that anticipatory feeling of those things you're looking forward to and the fulfillment when that day finally arrives, that joy, that fulfillment, those desires being met. Imagine that joy, that kind of fulfillment, that holy pleasure never coming to an end. And then the question for us tonight is, how is that like heaven? Those moments you really look forward to and they finally arrive, how is that like heaven? We might think of the eternal, boundless joys of heaven. When we say those words, eternal, boundless joys, never-ending fulfillment in the presence of Christ. We've talked about this a little bit over the course of the studies, right? That heaven is not the absence of desire, but it is the continuation of godly desires always and perpetually and eternally met in the goodness of God and the goodness of Christ. So that feeling of longing, that feeling of waiting, that excitement, that anticipation for that that you've been looking forward to, and then it finally arrives, that joy, that fulfillment lasting forever and forever, always being renewed and never ending. Not the absence of desires, but the eternal meeting of every good desire in Christ. And think about this, that no joy, no happiness, and no pleasure here will be unmatched or unmaximized in heaven. So as we think about those things or those events or those people or those places or those things that bring us joy in this life, good, godly, God-honoring joy of gratitude and praise to God, as we think about those things that bring us joy and represent God's goodness in this life, heaven will not be a place where those things are unmatched or unmaximized, but that pleasure and that joy that we know in part here will be fully maximized forever and eternally in heaven. I think sometimes we think of things here that are good and joyful and happy. Maybe it's a relationship or a friendship or or your marriage or your children or whatever it is that you say, man, I'm going to miss that. I want to go to heaven and I want to go to be with Jesus, but I'm going to miss that, whatever it is. And that's, that's natural because God put those good things in our life to enjoy and to glorify him in. But if we stop and think about heaven in light of those joys and those passions and those pleasures, we can never think that heaven is going to somehow be less than those things. Heaven is going to be eternally, joyfully more than those things. There's nothing going to be missing in heaven that is unmatched or unmaximized that we have here in this earth. So imagine those joys, imagine those pleasures eternally met in Christ and in God forever and forever. So that brings us into our main discussion tonight, daily hope and daily life. If you're in your study guide, this is uh, question number one on page 79. In light of that, if, if the joys and the loves and the desires and the pleasures that we, that we know here, if they will be maximized and met for all eternity in heaven, then what does this old earth tell us about the new earth? 
Remember, we've been talking this whole time about the new earth is not the doing away completely of the old earth. It is not God wadding up his creation or the universe, throwing it away and making something completely new. It's a redemption and a restoration of what we know now in our relationships, in creation, in the goodness and beauty and glory that God has put around us in creation. So the old earth, what we're in now, points us to the new earth uh, as a foretaste. You might write that word, a foretaste, a sample, a shadow. What we see and what we know and what we love and experience here and now is a foretaste, a sample, or foreshadowing of that which is to come in the new earth. On page 241, in my version of the book, it's the, it's the beginning of chapter 23, if that helps you out in your version of the book. Chapter 23, will the new earth be an Edenic paradise like Eden? A couple of paragraphs down, uh, the paragraph begins with all our lives. All our lives, we've been dreaming of the new earth. Whenever we see beauty in water, wind, flower, deer, man, woman, child, we catch a glimpse of heaven. Just like the Garden of Eden, the new earth will be a place of sensory delight, breathtaking beauty, satisfying relationships, and personal joy. So you take what we know that is good and holy in this life, in this world, on this side of the new creation, and we remember that nothing is going to be left out or unmatched in the new creation and the new heaven, but only be perfected and restored and redeemed. So in light of that, how should that knowledge and that promise affect how we see life here and now? How should that affect how we see life here and now? You know, I think sometimes when we think about heaven and Christians have thought and sung and wrote a lot about heaven in the past, we sort of picture this life as some begrudging, terrible misery <laughs> that we're just waiting to get away from in heaven. And for many who suffer and undergo trials that I'll never understand, there's some truth to that. But as we think about this life like that, it's hard for us to really understand what heaven is all about. Knowing that the new earth is the old earth renewed and restored and redeemed tells us some things about our life right here and right now. That our life right here right now should not be driven by escapism. In other words, we shouldn't always be considering how to get out of what we're doing, whether it's work or responsibility or something that God has put in our lives or even suffering and trial. We should not merely think of this life right here, right now, as something to be completely escaped from. But we should long for something better with anticipation. Doesn't that change the way we look at our circumstances? Doesn't that change the way we look at this life right here, right now? If we move from misery to anticipation. That doesn't change the fact that we will suffer and that there will be pain and there will be hardships, some that people will experience all their life long. It doesn't take away from that. But it does say, instead of just dreading every single moment here, why not anticipate what is to come then? 
I want to remind you of what Jesus did as he was going to the cross. The book of Hebrews says that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. You see what it's saying there? For the joy. Because he knew the glory and the resurrection and the joy that was coming later, he was able to see that moment of suffering as temporary. Isn't that what Paul says in Romans chapter 8? I consider the sufferings of this present world not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us then. So that changes Paul's mindset. It, it, it helped Jesus as he looked at the cross dead in the face to endure it, to suffer through it, for Paul to suffer through it by the grace of God. Why? Because they knew there was another side. There wasn't just begrudging misery and dread there, although those things were present sometimes. There was an anticipation of that which is to come. Um, in the book, page 248, I'm sorry, 245 and 248. I wish I could tell you if you have a different version um, where that is. It's in chapter 23 again, a few, few pages in. 245, the quote by Randy Alcorn. I don't know why he needs to quote himself in the book that he wrote, but he does. And <laughs> he says, uh, page 245, the little insect quote there. In the truest sense, Christian pilgrims have the best of both worlds. We have joy whenever this world reminds us of the next. And we take solace whenever it does not. You see what he said there? We have the best of both worlds. When we experience joy and happiness and pleasure in this life, it reminds us of what heaven will be. It points us to what heaven will be. But even when those things aren't present, when there isn't joy, when there isn't happiness, when there is suffering or pain, he says we take solace, we take comfort in knowing that heaven will be that even though this world is not. On page 248, he kind of concludes that thought at the end of chapter 23, the very last paragraph of chap chapter 23. Everything changes when we grasp that all we love about old earth will be ours on the new earth. Everything changes when we grasp that all we love about the old earth will be ours in the new earth. Either in the same form or another. Once we understand this, we won't regret leaving all the wonders of the world we've seen or mourn not having seen its countless other wonders. Why? Because we will yet be able to see them. Nothing wrong with having a bucket list. We understand trying to get those things in order and do the things we want to do before we die in this life. But this is a, a needed reminder for us sometimes, isn't it? That if we die in Christ before we experience whatever we wanted to experience, even though we die before we might have experienced them, we're not missing out on anything. Because that joy and that happiness and that fulfillment that we expect in those things will be eternally met in Christ and in the new creation forever and ever. So, we live with joy. Joy is different than momentary, temporary circumstantial happiness joy supersedes that kind of happiness based on our circumstances joy is joy in the midst of suffering trials or happiness 
It's there regardless. So we live our lives now with joy. We live with exuberance. We live out of gratitude. We live our lives in worship, knowing that the good things we see here are from God and we receive them from God and we worship God in those good things, knowing that they are just foretastes of the joy and the gladness that is to come. So if heaven is our daily hope, if that's where our hope is set, things above, not things on earth, but what is to come, if that is our daily hope, how should that affect our daily focus? How should that affect our daily focus? Well, we should live our lives with worship. We should live our lives to bring God glory. We should live our lives out of gratitude to God because we're bringing praise back to God in every area of our life. So to have our hope set on heaven is not to be completely mindless about how we live now, but it should influence the way we live now so that we make every moment holy. The, reform, the reformers said that we would live before the face of God. That's how we live this, in this world right here, right now. In light of what's to come, we don't just forget about now. We live right now in light of then. In our obedience, in our devotion to God, in our affections. That's a good theological word for our emotional connection to holy things, our affection. It has everything to do with our lives right now. So what is distracting you, maybe even tonight, from that focus? If our focus is on heaven and the joy that is to come, and if that affects how we live right now towards devotion and obedience and worship and glorifying God in every area of our life right now, what is distracting you from that focus on heaven? Maybe it was a misconception about heaven that was distracting you from the joy of heaven. How ironic is that, that we can be confused and misled about what heaven will be, and so our misconception about what that will be makes us have misconceptions about what this life should be. So maybe as we've gotten some things in order and seen biblically what the biblical picture of heaven is, maybe that should reorder how we see some things in our lives. What, what should it say about our priorities? What should it say about our passions, the things, the things that drive us? What should it say about how we respond to good things? That we rejoice in them, but we know that there's better things coming. What does it say about how we react to our suffering? How we respond to trials? If our focus was on heaven and the joy that is to come, how would that change how we see life now? And what is distracting you from that hope? Next, the new hope, new life. So daily hope daily life. Now we see that we have a new hope. We should have a new life. This is on the study guide, page 80, questions 2 through 3, also in your handout. If you want to, turn with me to the book of 1 John. 1 John on your phone, in your, on your phone or in your real Bible. I like that. Tablets. Book of 1 John. What does it mean to walk in the light? What does it mean to walk in the darkness? 
If we have our hope set on heaven and the joy that is to come, and we say that, is, that should affect how we live now, well, what should it affect? How should it affect that? Look at 1 John chapter 1. Let's just read verses 5 through 10. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. What does the Apostle John mean by walking in darkness? To walk in darkness, well, let's just simplify it. To walk in sin. To walk in the lusts of our sinful flesh. Shorthand, not living a godly life. For John, to walk in darkness implies what we would think of if we were to turn the lights off in here, all of them, and no exit lights, no emergency lights, and there's no outside ambient light coming in, and, and suddenly I wanted you all to get up and, and get out the door and try to go upstairs and, and everything else. We'd have a mess. Right? Why? Because you're in darkness and you can't see. And so the picture of walking in darkness for John is one of wrong focus, wrong direction, distraction, being off course. Maybe we, we could just think more practically if I turned all the lights off and we all had to get out of here very quickly. Confusion, lostness, chaos. And John says that the end of this kind of living and the end of this kind of thinking in darkness leaves someone aimless, leaves us pointless, and leaves us hopeless. So what does it mean for us to walk in the light? John is contrasting darkness and light to walk in darkness versus to walk in the light. Well, for John, that means to walk in righteousness and holiness. If darkness meant not living a godly life, then walking in the light means living a godly life. And when we say godly, it means a Godward life. There's a direction to it. It's not just changing a bunch of things about what we do and what we don't do and say, well, I'm so godly. No, it's living life toward God with a goal of holiness, with our mind set on him, our mind set on heaven, living a Godward life, right focus right direction as we were intended so if you're in the dark with confusion lostness and chaos turn on the light there's purpose there's salvation there's order i can see where i'm going i know what to do so life in the light rather than life in the dark can be intentional it can be purposeful and instead of being hopeless and aimless, it can be full of hope and joy. And so John shows us this little contrasting picture of walking in the darkness and walking in the light. He says the difference is what we're going toward. 
Are we going toward the light, which he later says, what God is light and in him there is no darkness at all? Are we focused on him and his light and his joy, heaven? Remember what Alcorn said in a couple chapters back, that to think about heaven is to think about Christ and to think about Christ is to think about heaven? So if we set our focus on him, we are thinking about heaven. And if we live a heavenward life, we are living a Godward life. Life in the light, not life in the dark. Turn over to 1 John chapter 3 as he continues sort of the same thought process. How should the hope of heaven change us? Okay, if I'm not supposed to walk in the darkness, I'm supposed to walk in the light. What actually changes about what I do? What is, what, what is the change that it makes in me? Well, look at 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So if we're commanded by the apostle to walk in the light and not in the darkness, and to walk with a heavenward, Godward focus, Longing for the day, as he says here in these chap- chapter 3, when we see him and we're made like him because we see him as he is, if that's our hope, if that's our joy, if that's the prize to see Jesus and to be like him, what does he say in verse 3? Everyone who hopes this way does what? Purifies himself and lives pure even as he is pure. So if you're in the light... Your focus is Christ, your focus is God, your focus is heaven. You're longing to see Jesus face to face, you're longing to be like him. He says that isn't just something that you have to wait on then, but it can begin now as we prepare for that day then. Purify ourselves, strive to live holy before him. Simply put, not living as we did but living in the light of that hope. And if you are here, lost, directionless, hopeless, aimless, in the dark, and you in Christ are now in the light, and there's hope, and there's truth, and there's joy there, there's an obvious change that has taken place. This is what we call conversion. The Bible sees the Christian life as one that has been changed. The old has gone, The new has come. The old man has been crucified. We've been reborn in Christ. This is our life now. And if that is our life now, and Jesus and God and heaven are our hope and our prize, something had to change. This is who we were. This is who we are. That quote on the top of the next page comes from the study guide, page 80. Jesus says in in the Gospel of John that he's going to prepare a place for us. I like this turn on that quote. Christ is not simply preparing a place for us. He is preparing us for that place. 
He's not simply preparing a place for us, but he is even right now in this life, right here and right now, preparing us for that place. Next, let's look at the joy of the master. Go back to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25. Let's look at uh, verses 14 through 21. Matthew 25, 14 through 21. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one. To each according to his ability, then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled the accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made you five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter in to the joy of your master. In this little brief picture from this parable, at the beginning at least, how does Jesus picture heaven? Well, Jesus pictures heaven using this metaphor of a reward. A master has gone away, he comes back, he finds his servants have been working for him, and he gives them their due reward. This servant is given a place of honor, a place of glory with the master. And how does Jesus describe, at least in the parable, how does he sort of describe the kingdom of heaven, this reward that we're waiting on? He says it is the joy of of my master enter into the joy of my master now greek works in such a way where we have um, basically if we were to summarize this in english we would say enter into my master's joy the joy of my master so is this the joy that the master has that we're entering into or is this referring to the joy that the master has and gives and i think either way you go is the right answer Jesus says, enter into the joy both that my master has, that is his, you enter into that, but also enter into the joy that he now gives you. So Jesus pictures heaven in this parable, a reward, a prize, a position of honor and glory with the joy of the master all around us. Now let's pick up in verse 24. A similar thing happens with the the. The servant that got the two talents, he made two more. Well done, enter in. But in verse 24, we have something else. He also who had received one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. 
So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has been given, more will be given, and he, who, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What of this second servant? What was so wicked, third servant rather, what was so wicked about this third servant and how he handled his talents? The first one received five, he made five more. Well done, enter into the joy of the Lord. The second one received two, he made two more. Well done, enter into the joy of the Lord. This one received one, says I was scared of you, I was fearful of you, and I hid the talent so I didn't lose it. So here, just have what you gave me in the original uh, case back. What was so wicked about that? Number one, he did nothing with what he had been given. He did nothing with what he had been given. He squandered it. He didn't waste it. He didn't spend it. But he did not use it wisely, and so it was squandered. He did not live with gratitude and service to the master. Why? Because he was lost in fear and misplaced confidence the first servant seeking to please his master when he returns did something with what he had been given and made more so did the second servant but this third servant is so wicked not just because of his laziness and his slothfulness which Jesus says is there but because of his misconception of the master and his misconception of the reward He was so overcome with a sense of preserving himself. I don't want to lose what the master gave me, so I'm going to do nothing with it. Preserving self, looking out for himself, that that overcame his obedience to the master. His selfishness and self-centered laziness overcame any desire he might have had to please his master with what he has been given. So what should this tell us about serving Jesus now? What does it tell us about heaven? Well, it tells us that this is the point. Here is the point of life here and now. That we have a gift given to us by the master and we ought to do something with it for him. Whether we're talking just generically about life and breath and the things that God gives us, or if we're talking sort of specifically as Christians with the gospel that we've been entrusted with, the point that Jesus is making is in this life, before the master comes, right here, right now, live and work for the master intentionally, doing something with what you've been given for him. Not, listen, not as a matter of working to earn one's salvation, but out of gratitude and worship that flows from salvation. Living this life right here, right now, for the believer now, for us, this life right here, right now, should be a life of obedience, a life of worship, and a life of honor so that we can bring joy to our master. 
how often people live like, and isn't it, isn't it interesting that people do live their lives in a certain way because of misconceptions about heaven or misconceptions about hell? That the, the general framework for most people on the planet is that there probably is an afterlife and, and I'm probably going to heaven. I, I think like 95% of people, if they believe in heaven, probably think they're going there. But they see it as just this sort of secondary thing that's somehow subpar to life right here, right now. That it's not so much a goal or a longing that changes how we live right now. But people see it as just sort of an eternal escape. And so it has no bearing on how they live right here and right now. But when we shift our focus and our thinking on heaven as not just an escape card, but as a goal and a prize and the joy of the Lord, that changes how we live our lives right here, right now, to bring joy to the master who is coming in his kingdom. He's given us a job to do. He's given us a commission to obey. He's given us things to use for his glory. And so we live our lives in light of that day with gratitude and worship and obedience. Go ahead and turn with me to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2, and we'll look at chapter 3 for a minute too. Revelation chapter 2. In light of what Jesus tells us about loving him and serving him and working for him in light of heaven, let's listen to some of these uh, promises and conditions in Revelation. Revelation chapter 2, we kind of enter into the middle of John's letters to the seven churches. You remember, that's how, that's how the book of Revelation starts, is actual letters to seven actual historical churches, just like Corinth or Rome or somewhere else. We have those kind of letters. Listen to what he says in uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. Now, this is the angel of the Lord. This is the Lord speaking to John to these churches. Revelation 2, 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Look down at that same chapter, Revelation chapter 2, verse 26. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Look at chapter 3, verse 11. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Lastly, chapter 3, verse 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So what are the promises made in those verses? Well, we see joy. We see a crown. We see reigning with Christ. We see a, a place at the throne of God, heaven, eternal life, however you, victory. But did you also see conditions? This is on your study guide, by the way, page 82. It's kind of a combination of questions seven through eight. Did you see any conditions? 
joy, a crown, victory, heaven, eternal life. But there were some ifs, right? If you hold fast. If you overcome. If you persevere. If you conquer. Now that's interesting, isn't it? We do not have a time right now. Maybe, maybe it's in your questions next week. How about that? There's a good plug for that. We don't have time to talk about the conditions versus the truth of eternal security. You know, if you persevere, you will have eternal life. If you overcome. Well, we can talk about that next week a little bit if someone wants to ask that question. They're, they harmonize, I promise. But we do see some important stuff here, don't we? Joy, heaven, eternal life for the overcomer, for the one who perseveres, for the one who holds fast until the end. There's a promise and there's a condition. Overcome, persevere. Think about that in light of what Jesus said. The master is coming. What will he find you doing when he comes? The kingdom is coming. What will your place be in the kingdom when it comes? Or will you have no place because you've been doing nothing? You're not persevering. You're not overcoming. You're not conquering. Look at Philippians chapter 3. Last one I'll have you turn to tonight. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3, verses uh, 7 through 14. Let's start in... Let's start where I said, verse 7. <laughs> Philippians 3, 7. Paul says, Whatever I gain, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, having become like him in his death, that by any means possible I may obtain the resurrection of the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because of Christ Jesus who has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but the one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus my Lord. What was Paul's goal here in Philippians chapter 3? What Paul would call the, quote, high calling of Jesus Christ. And that kind of comes in a few ways as Paul describes it. It's to be like Christ. It's to know Christ. To be like him. To know him. To know him in the power of his resurrection. And what does that mean for Paul in verse 11? That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. The high calling of Christ Jesus is to know him, to be like him, and to be raised with him. 
And so this changes Paul's focus, doesn't it? If you know what came before this, before verse 7, you know Paul had just listed off all the things that he could brag about. A Pharisee, I kept the law, circumcised on the eighth day, Hebrew of Hebrews, teacher of the law, persecutor of Christians. Paul's listing off all the things that he could boast in. But what does he say in verse 8 that those things become in light of the knowledge of Christ? He says, I count those things as rubbish. So because Paul's focus was shifted to Christ, that his goal was now to be like him and to know him and to be raised in him, the focus shifts from Paul and his earthly accomplishments and it shifts to Christ. So that he says, I suffer for him. I work for him for him I overcome for him I conquer for him I labor for him you see all this sort of working together that Jesus pictures these servants working for the master who is coming Revelation tells us the crown is yours persevere work keep on going and Paul says I'm doing the same thing I want to know him I want to be raised with him and so I labor for him it changed his focus from what it was, himself, to knowing Jesus. The question for us tonight, the question for you, is that your goal? Is that your goal? And if you can't say that it is, or there's a question, and that next question is also important, what is your goal? If you can't say that knowing Christ is your goal, or you're not certain that that is your goal, then maybe we should ask, should ask ourselves, what is our goal? Uh, on, in the book, page 455, beginning of chapter 45, this quote from C.S. Lewis, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. Lewis says, I got to keep heaven in mind because as I keep heaven in mind, it keeps my life heavenward. And it makes my focus heavenward for me, he says, and for others that I hope to bring with me. So a very simple question as we close this, this series, proper part of this series, what is your focus? Study guide, page 84, question 9. What is then your focus? Hebrews 11 Chapter, chapter 11, verse 16, you don't have to turn there, I'm going to read it to you. I just want you to listen to how the author describes those who are heaven-focused. Hebrews eleven sixteen. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. How does God feel about those 
who focus on heaven. A biblical, true, scripture-based focus on heaven. All the stuff we've been talking about. How does God feel about those who focus on heaven? I think sometimes we think we ought not to focus on heaven as if it's, it's there and it's promised for us, but, but we have to live our lives right here, right now. And now the admirable way of thinking, we shouldn't be so heavenly-minded that we're of no earthly good. That's a good little preacher one-liner people say. But how does God see people who are heaven-focused? What does he say here? These people who desire a better country, a heavenly one, Therefore, God is not ashamed. So what is the opposite? What does that mean, not ashamed? If we were to put that in a positive sense, if he's not ashamed, he is proud of them. Think about what heaven is, the joy of the Lord, the kingdom prepared for you. You know, if I prepare a meal for my family, Or if I put, you know, a Christmas toy together, which I've done a few of, uh, for my daughters or Isaac, and I give it to them. And for some reason, they're so mature that they have this understanding of humility and pride and everything. And and they say, oh, Father, I don't don't deserve that. (laughs) I don't want your good gift that you've labored so long to put together for me. I I don't want this meal that you've, you know, labored over. Isn't that false humility? What does that say to me? I can tell you what it says to me. As the one who prepared the meal, or the one who put the thing together, or what would that say to you as a parent or a friend that you offered something to, and, they, and you've labored over it, and you love them, and you want to give this to them, and they don't, they don't really want to pay any attention to it out of some false sense of humility. What does God say to those who are heaven-focused? It's my joy to give you the kingdom, God says. It's okay to be heaven-focused. It says here that God is not ashamed to be called their God because their mind is fixed on him. Their mind is fixed on the kingdom. He takes joy in them. So tonight, what are your deepest longings? And would God be proud of those longings? It says here, those who long for heaven, God is proud of them. Not because they've done something so good that made God you know, proud of them, but because they find their joy in him. And he takes pleasure in that. What is your deepest longings? Would God be proud of those longings? How can a wrong focus on heaven give us a wrong idea about life here and now? If we don't understand heaven biblically, We don't understand the truth about what heaven is and what God has promised. How does that affect our life here and now? Well, we can misplace our priorities. We can misplace our worship. Even thinking that we're worshiping God, and I'm not talking about just the corporate worship in the sanctuary. I'm talking about the worship of our lives. We can misplace our worship Because we're no longer focused on the joy of our master and bringing pleasure to him and our labors and our striving and our perseverance. We can find ourselves serving the wrong master, as did the servant in the parable, who really wound up serving himself, protecting himself, covering himself. So if that's us and we have misplaced priorities, misplaced worship, we're serving the wrong master, 
What happens when the master comes? What happens when the master comes? Follow-up question, though. The opposite. Hopefully we're coming here together. What does a right focus on heaven? How does a right focus on heaven give us a right idea about life here and now? If the misconceptions can change in a bad way how we live, how does the truth change in a good way how we live here and now? Well, we know where we're going. We know where we're going. We know who we serve. We know his joy. And now maybe, maybe just through this series, you've been able to understand how we see his joy in the everyday joys of life. We see his glory in us. We see his glory in each other. A right focus on heaven and a right understanding of heaven recalibrates our understanding of living. It gives it purpose, aim, joy, and devotion because our focus becomes the glory of God. In the book, page 465, Sorry, 466. At the end of um, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, the last book being called The Last Battle. If you're familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia or at least seen the movie Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and the terrible sequels that came after that, <laughs> you know, the, the character of Aslan the lion is this picture of Christ. And he leads the, the, the Pevensley children to victory as we kind of get this picture of the gospel. The last battle is a picture of what it sounds like. The end of all things and the glory of heaven that is to come told in the story of Narnia. And these are some of the closing words from that book quoted in page 466 of the heaven book. Aslan is speaking. It says, and as he spoke, he no, no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter 1 of the great story which no one on earth has read which goes on forever in which every chapter is better than the one before when um, the illustration that the author gives in the book also of the man that was dying and his son asked him on his deathbed how does he feel stupid question but he's on his deathbed how do you feel and the man responded, son, I feel like it's Christmas Eve because he knew the joy that awaited him when he woke up in heaven. Tonight, as we close, look at that last section of your handout. I want you to go home and I want you to think about heaven and your personal focus every day. Take the handout with you, take the study guide with you, and in the space that you're given there in the handout, Write down some areas of your life and thinking 
that need to be refocused on Christ and his kingdom? What steps can you begin to take to begin that shift in your focus? As we close tonight, I'm going to invite you to spend just a few moments in prayer asking God to help you with this shift in your priorities and your thinking. So I want you to just take a few moments, think about those questions. You can begin to write some things down now, take it home and think about it later. But I'm going to give you just a few moments in the silence to pray and to begin to ask God to help you shift your focus and shift your priorities in light of all these wonderful things we've learned. Take about two minutes in prayer, and then I will close us with a final corporate prayer. Our God, we give you thanks and praise for the promise of heaven. We ask your forgiveness for when we've misunderstood or misconceived what heaven is. God, sometimes with all the best intentions, we can distort reality and distort truth to suit our own needs, our own imaginations, and so we ask that you would help us to correct that. And maybe as we've come face to face with the truth of your word about heaven, maybe in some cases, I know in my case, you've corrected some thinking, you've corrected some wrong ideas. And God, I ask for each of us that you would reorient and recalibrate our focus, that we would understand where we're going, We would understand who we serve, and that would change how we live our lives, not just then, but right here and right now in this life, every day. God, convict our hearts and our our souls, our minds, where we've failed in these areas. And we ask that you would fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. Assure us of the promise that the work you've began in us, you will complete until the day of Jesus Christ. And cause us then with joy and with worship to keep running, to keep working, to keep serving as we long for that day when we see you. As we long for that day when we see Christ, we see the kingdom of heaven in all of its glory and wonder. Help us to fix our home there so that we will understand how to live here. God, go with us and be with us. Protect us by your Spirit's might and power. Preserve us by your power unto that day. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.